Welcome back to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina, and sadly, there is no Kyle today because Kyle's busy with work, so I'm going to take over for this one. And this episode is part of our debate analysis series, a series of episodes dedicated to explaining the motions of Debatable Open 2022. The goal of this series is to give debaters a better understanding of the different topics they've encountered if they competed in the tournament and give those that weren't able to join us a chance to learn from the motions as well. Today, we are joined by Bayok Bison, who gave us our topics for the media theme of the tournament. So hi, Bessie. Welcome to our show. Hello. All right. So as starters, before we begin analyzing the motions, we usually be- begin by asking, what is your like connection to media motions? Like, Why do you enjoy it? Um, what is it about media that makes you so interested in talking about it? So honestly, I have like two answers to this question. Um, I guess the first is the very boring answer, which is like, um, I'm into media motions or I'm into media as like a concept, mostly because it's very related to me and the like line of work that I do. So in well, I'm still in college, but like my org work, for example, is related to media. Uh, I do a lot of marketing work, a lot of public relations work. Um, almost all of my internships have something to do with some form of media. Um, but I guess the more, the, the like quote-unquote more personal answer is um, I enjoy it because when we discuss media or when I say the word media, it's a very broad range of channels and it's a very broad range of things. Um, what I mean by that is there is a difference, for example, between media that refers to books, movies, shows, etc. But there's also a difference between media that refers to news and I guess like um, news outlets, publications, etc. There's also a difference with what media is when we talk about social media. And that's mostly because um, the channels or mediums rather by which we engage in media, you know, evolve over time as things like technology and I guess humanity involves. And as a result, I think that's why there's so many issues to be discussed when it comes to media. Um, because first of all, it's not just like issues surrounding what the latest like channel of media but it's also centered around things like narratives, the way we personally use media, etc. So I think there are a lot of things to be talked about when it comes to media, and that's why I enjoy it so much. Yeah, what I notice about media motions is that they often talk about a lot of different things at the same time. Like it's never really just about media. It's also about people's connection to it, how they feel about it, how it affects politics or international relations even. And I feel like that's something a lot of debaters need to keep in mind that they often forget. So thanks for that reminder. I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners um, needed to be reminded of that and needed to hear that as well. So let's jump straight into the first motion, which is this house regrets the dominant role social media plays in fashion trends. And I really like this motion. It's really interesting to me because it's not very common that you see fashion motions in general in the debate community. So I wanted to ask, before we go and analyze this, what inspired you to make this motion? Okay, so um, as a very chronically online person, joke, I'm not chronically online for the record, but um, <laughs> as a person that um, is on YouTube a lot, for example, or on TikTok a lot, I think TikTok's a good example for the motion, um, you kind of see a rise in uh, e-commerce, right? So we have Shein, we have Shopee, we have Zolora, etc. And that's kind of happening simultaneously with the rise of social media content that kind of 
couples that or kind of is complementary or supplementary to that. So this looks like the rise of halls, for example, the rise of fashion, social media influencers, um, content being made on TikTok or YouTube that is solely dedicated to um, fashion. And this is quite similar, for example, the good examples, I guess, are like um, Best Dress, KTU, or at least those are the things that I watch. Um, and what inspired me there is I kind of just like, one, the fact that it's so prevalent, but second of all, um, it kind of begs the question on what it does to already existing issues around fashion. The idea that a lot of the fashion that we buy is um, sourced unsustainably, unethically. The fact that fashion itself is, um, the consumption of it rather contributes to a lot of environmental problems. And oftentimes, um, the already existing demand for fashion um, is kind of like expedited or accelerated by the role that social media plays. But at the same time, there's still benefits to having social media, um, you know, uh, be around when it comes to helping people navigate fashion trends or identify fashion trends or participate in fashion trends. So that's kind of like the inspiration that like came to me when I did uh, write this motion, I think, um, for a tournament back in December. So you mentioned quite a few things already that I think would be useful for government side, right? Like talking about fast fashion, talking about like the peer pressure that exists because of things like TikTok, the rise of different platforms like Shein and Shopee and Lazada. So I, I wanted to ask just as a very, as a way to clean up this discussion, I guess, um, because there's quite a lot of things to explore. If you were on government, which ones uh, out of the things you mentioned or maybe things you haven't mentioned yet would you highlight in terms of your framing for government side? Uh, okay. I think what I would personally highlight, I guess, is how it kind of promotes mindless overconsumption. And yeah, there are many ways to go about that, right? So it's just um, social media is kind of designed to present to you content to motivate you to do a certain action. So for example, um, Shopee, Lazada, they present to you ads, but they do that in such a way that they present to you products that you're kind of likely to buy. And the types of products that they present to you are based upon um, your most recent searches on Shopee or on Lazada. So if a few minutes ago, I looked at this um, puff sleeve dress, let's say on a Shopee store, it's very likely that I will see it on my social media feed or my social media ads. Um, so that's one part, right? The fact that it promotes you to overconsume. But I think there's also a discussion on um, are you really buying things that are things that you might actually enjoy or things you might actually like? I think there's also room to discuss the rise of influencer marketing and affiliate marketing, which is kind of heavily intertwined with the existence of social media, right? Because social media kind of birthed influencers mm. um, and discuss how a lot of these influencers there or affiliate marketing teams they're motivated by um they're motivated by affiliate commissions so that essentially just means um for every person that makes a purchase to a certain brand using their link or using their code in you know like when influencers say buy from this with the code in my description bio for example um they get a commission from that and the problem then there is um, a lot of these influencers and or affiliate marketing teams, for example, like on listicle websites, let's say like top five dresses for you to buy or top five makeup for you to buy. Um, it's not 
there's nothing to guarantee that they're actually giving true information um, about the product, for example, or if they're saying a disproportionate amount of pros versus cons in order to get you to convert every visit to their website or every visit to their content on social media um, into a into a sale that will lead into them getting an affiliate commission or a sales commission. So I think that's another like more spec way of approaching it. Um, so yeah, it's just the different ways that it compels people to overconsume. And then the impacts would be things like, um, this is quite bad. A lot of this is unjustly produced, for example. Um, a huge part of doing fashion sustainably is really just not buying things at all rather than, you know, buying vegan clothing or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I really like the last part you said because the alternative people think exists is like buying vegan clothes or, I, I don't know, like fabric made from plants, yeah. right? But you're still, you're yeah. still buying stuff, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that, may, that leads me to the question now of what's the alternative? So if you don't fall into... Uh, fast fashion, you don't fall into um, buying clothes that are sustainably made. Is it justified to just say not buy clothes at all? Because I feel like opposition can abuse this stance from government or try to spin it or dupang mm-hmm. it actually into saying that, you know, it's unreasonable to have that stance. So how would you pull it off? Um, I would personally just go by saying uh, one, the alternative is to just like either not buy clothes at all, if that's what is within your threshold. But it's also things like, for example, purchasing from already like existing, um, from clothes that have already been used. So a good example is thrifting. Um, I think there's a rise somewhat of thrifting. I guess places like Depop kind of help that, but yeah. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be that you don't have to shop at all. Obviously there are many structural reasons for why that is not feasible. Um, but in the case in which you want to buy clothes or you want to participate in your own form of self-expression, um, then yeah, there is an option to um, uh, thrift, for example, or buy more sustainably. Um, but yeah, most of it is just lowering your consumption. And you know, a world we're in, um, social media, which is the thing that is heavily intertwined into the lives of many consumers, um, isn't going around trying to tell you to buy this new skirt or this new pair of jeans almost every five minutes, you are significantly less likely to purchase a lot. And you're probably more likely to be um, more mindful of the way that you buy or you choose to buy or where to buy from, for example. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to ask now about opposition because you mentioned something about thrifting. And I feel like if I were an op and I want to run this by you because I'm also not sure if this is like a correct stance. But if I were an op, I would say stuff like, you know, it's social media that actually encourages people to thrift, the thrift halls, you know, like um, people um, reselling things that um, yeah. they, they used to own, right? So it's only possible because of things like Carousel, Facebook Marketplace, things like that. Is that a feasible stance you would run an opposition? Like, actually, this is a good thing because we are combating fast fashion by putting all the sustainable things on social media. Yeah, I agree. I think um, on opposition, the strategy is just to reimagine the world we're in. Social media wasn't there, or social media isn't an option are much of a dominant option rather, or there's not much of a market or a demand or an audience for social media and, and fashion. So what that would look like is 
you would heavily rely on word of mouth. You'd heavily rely on what's within your proximity because you don't have the benefit of being able to meet someone from like five kilometers away on Facebook Marketplace and tell them, I like your jacket. Um, how much is that, for example? So, um, and that's kind of terrible because I think the reasons you can give are something along the lines of most cases, the things in your closest proximity or the things that are promoted to you um, are fast fashion. So this is the H&Ms in Mega Mall or the like Forever 21s in Shangri-La. There's no Forever 21 in Shangri-La, but let's pretend there is. Um, and that just means that you're more likely to gravitate to the all of these very big um, fast fashion chain stores that have the means to be able to promote to you on-site um, and I think the explanation then there is um, social media obviously has a very low upfront cost for small for thrifting, for example, or for smaller business fashion businesses um, because you don't have to pay for a brick and mortar store. You don't have to pay for manpower. It's kind of just, you know, Shopee will do that for you. Carousel will do that for you. Depop will do that for you. They'll do all the marketing for you through their algorithms and whatnot. So yeah, I think that's the way to go about it on opposition. Obviously, there are other arguments like independent of this specific issue on fast fashion that might explain why it's good that social media is participating in fashion trends. Um, but for with regards to engaging on the fast fashion debate or on the sustainability debate, um, this is how I would go about it. Yeah, so I wanted to ask like what other angles you would explore. So it seems that fast fashion is a big chunk of it, obviously. Um, but it's interesting because this is, a, this is a rather broad motion. So I can also imagine angles about small businesses. I can also imagine angles about self-expression, about finding yourself. So how would you run these arguments and what other arguments would you recommend people debate or opposition teams explore if they were in that position? Yeah, so those are exactly what I was thinking of when I made the motion, the idea of um, small businesses um, and then the idea of self-expression. So first on small businesses, um, this is different from the fast fashion debate. So just explain that um, small businesses um, don't really have the means to be able to compete with, you know, very big fast fashion chains because obviously capitalized, they're very different. Um, sometimes they don't want to, they don't have the means to, so this is just a side hustle for someone. And therefore, social media kind of allows them to be able to do that, um, allows them to execute their passions, allows them to be able to make money from their business, and that's good. Um, my, my The other um, argument that I also like is that this is a means of self-expression. Um, so the frame for this is kind of like, um, there are tons of people who use fashion as a means for self-expression. And for many people, it's also a means of affirming their gender expression, affirming their gender identity. And in these specific cases, sometimes their way of dressing up is not one that is easily affirmed by mainstream society. So for example, if you dress a bit androgynous, if you dress a bit um, feminine, let's say, if, you're, um, if you identify per se as a man, um, it's very easy for you to either A, um, not find inspiration um one not find inspiration on how to dress in mainstream like in print media for example or in your own local stores because the way for example um for example forever 21 or h&m or the stores within your malls they kind of dress them as women women's clothing men men's clothing women only wear skirts men wear suits etc and there's not really a lot of room for fluidity and expression but in social media first of all 
um, since there are a lot of very small social media um, enclaves, social media echo chambers, um, there's anonymity, for example, other things like that, that's oftentimes where you're able to, first of all, um, get inspiration on how exactly other people, different types of people dress for their own respective self-expression or gender expression um, because you have access to content not just made by people within your own physical locality but also people that live in different continents and different countries and therefore maybe they also live in more progressive worlds and in more progressive communities that allow them to um, uh, foster and dress a certain way and they get to share that experience and share that information with you and that's where they can learn and then the second one is also like um, it allows you to become a bit more secretive I guess or allows you to become uh, or not really secretive but a personal with your gender expression or self-expression because from there that's where you can buy personally if let's say I'm a person who wants to wear a skirt but socially, my community might not be okay with me literally going to a mall and trying on a skirt in the fitting room and they might judge me for it. I can be able to do that um, with the usage of social media and other things like that. So yeah, those are the angles that I see the way, see um, opposition going about later on into the round. You mentioned something about H&M and Forever 21, like having stereotypical clothing, like skirts for women, suits for men. Is there a way you can use this motion to prove that social media actually influences the outside world? Oh yeah, I think I think that's another way to go about it. Um, so I think the on I guess op would go in this case that there's a way to argue that social media kind of influences the way fast fashion or like Sheen, for example, is being done. Um, so notice how there are so many micro trends that. Um, the moment they become a hit on TikTok, for example, you see them later on being replicated in almost every fast fashion brand you know under the sun. So a good example was like um, when Coconut Girl was a thing and then all of a sudden you see all these floral prints and all these halter tops um, on Shein uh, and even in like Forever 21 or in H&M. Um, yeah, there's a way to argue about that and just argue that it's better because um, it means that it becomes more accessible to people. There's a more um, there. These trends become more accessible to people who because obviously the with things like thrifting and things like Depop, it's not really infinite and it's not really an unlimited supply in comparison to what's in fast fashion, right? Because oftentimes it's just like one unit of something that's being resold on Depop or in Facebook Marketplace, etc. Yeah. So thank you so much for those. Um, I'm. I really want to watch this debate happen. So, you know, I'm really excited to see what people run because I'm pretty sure there might be more angles we weren't able to explore yeah. given that, like, people are so creative, especially when it comes to fashion. Like, I, I get surprised every day with what people are able to come up with, um, especially on social media, like on TikTok, the trends, the the hauls, the, the sheen packages, whatever. <laughs> so anyway, let's move on to the second motion which is this house prefers a world where in media made for children, e.g. novels, cartoons, etc., they actively portray its characters as morally gray. So this is a, a sort of a spin to a very classic motion about seeing the world in black and white. And in this case, mm -hmm. you want to see things as morally gray. I kind of want to ask first, what does it mean for characters to be morally gray? Like, would you be able to come up with examples or situations where you might see these things happening in a child's book setting. Yeah, okay. Um, 
So I think the way this can be seen is, for example, also so broadly, what this really just means is establishing um, that there is no uh, there is no absolute good or bad to characters. Um, sometimes characters can um, be both good or bad. Um, I think I'm pretty sure in most debates, if this motion were to be used it would also suggest, or the framing would also suggest that this could ex this could go into explaining why certain people are bad um, through circumstance or through other things like that, you know, which is normally what we see um, being done when it comes to debate like debates like this. So um, when it comes to um, actively portraying its characters as morally great, it kind of like fixes the story um, and makes an effort to explain why they came out that way. Sometimes it makes you an effort to sympathize with them. Um, sometimes makes you an effort um, to understand that not all things are good. Or for example, um, I think a good, I think an okay example is like, uh, I guess like Maleficent, for example. So Maleficent, I think to some degree was still marketed toward children, but obviously a significant part of it um, covered things like how Maleficent was entirely bad, Maleficent suffered a lot of abuse, for example. Um, so even if she is identified as a villain in Sleeping Beauty's story, um, there's so much more to her lived experience that kind of warrants her as a medio more or somewhat morally gray character. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's I love how that. I, I love that it. movie, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> love that movie. Yeah, so I, I think like having this or personally, like I like this motion because I do think that children should learn morally gray characters and morally gray situations from a young age. But obviously that's just me. So I'm kind of biased for this motion. I wanted to ask as well, like what age range would you expect this debate taking place in? So what are children in this context? Are they... um? as soon as they're born, they're exposed to morally great characters and situations or would you wait until a particular age? Would you, um, is there a world wherein you start introducing black and white situations? Um, like what, I guess my question is like, given all the possibilities of government running this in their policy or in their version of the world, how would you do it as the most strategic form? Mm, okay. Uh, because when it came to framing or I guess like model building, my perspective in it was always like, um, when, if we're discussing children or minors in general, there are some age ranges wherein there is kind of like no impact, right? So for example, if you're a baby, like a literal toddler, maybe you're like, a, no, no, not toddler, maybe like a baby baby, um, this might affect you because you probably can't perceive the media anyway. If you're like a tween, for example, or you're in the age enough where you're considered to be a young adult um, that also might not be much as impactful because by then you are already being introduced like YA novels and other media that already kind of allude to morally gray. So in my head, this kind of um, the debate partakes mostly um, in very like kindergarten to elementary level, wherein a large majority of what they're reading establishes villain, hero, protagonist, antagonist, it's bad because they're grumpy and they're grouchy and there's not really much depth into, uh, into the characters um, on who they are morally, or at least there's not an effort to make it clear, if that makes sense. So um, yeah, that's mostly where I would go about it, at least in order to have a more or less clean debate that doesn't just default into um, going like, they won't understand it, or... 
um, things like they already get morally gray media anyway. Yeah. I really like their perspective and I think a lot of debaters would benefit from it. So setting the debate up where there is possible impact is the best way to frame it. So I never thought of it that way. I'm sure a lot of debaters have not seen the debate in that way as well or general debates in that way. So thank you for that. I think it's a really useful tip for debaters to keep in mind. So the next thing I want to ask here is how influential really is media? So you said you wanted to set it in a frame where there is possible impact. So the question now is, how are we sure that there is impact in the first place, right? Because if you were an opposition, you could easily say that, well, the impact isn't going to be that great anyway. Um, So in government, to preempt this or to sort of build on this idea, how do you prove that media does affect a child in the way of introducing them to morally great concepts and the complexities of the world? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think what a lot of, what is weird to me is whenever I see similar motions like this is that um, people kind of forget the way media is very heavily intertwined in our lives, especially when we're kids. So for example, um, I think a lot of parents find it difficult to explain morals and rules to children. And therefore, they kind of present to them children's books or TVs or movies or shows and kind of draw from the experiences of the characters within that media in order to explain to them a certain moral. So um, for example, what's a good example of this? Um, this isn't necessarily media, but for example, like parables, um, like the tortoise are, or rather the tortoise and the hare, for example, they show us that there's a hare and there's a tortoise. And then through there, they explain that um, we shouldn't be cocky, we shouldn't be arrogant, you know, we shouldn't always think that we have, um, that we will always instantly win. Or for example, um, they explain, they explain love to us or our notions of love through Disney princesses, like, True love's kiss are the prince will always wait for you. And that's kind of how we've built a generation of people that are very centered around destiny or the one or very monogamous um, ideals of love and dating and etc. So um, I think that's how it's kind of impactful because um, children's media is the medium by which parents explain um, the world to kids or explain morals to kids or explain how we should behave. And I think um, that last part, especially the idea on how we should behave is mostly what I think is or makes up a huge part of this motion. Um, mostly because, right, so the world, the motion is phrased as this house prefers a world. So again, we're imagining a world we're in. Um, the media being presented to children as early as like elementary school or yes kindergarten is when we're in there being told that um, people are morally gray so it's not enough for opposition to argue that they won't be able to understand it because it kind of begs the question of if this is presented if this is the world that is taught to them from the very beginning of time it's quite likely that they'll understand it so the debate becomes whether or not it's good that children from the onset are kind of taught about moral grayness um so yeah um yeah that's that's it yeah, I think that's a great explanation of the frame. Also, a great explanation for how government can run this motion in particular. I wanted to ask now about opposition. So what stance would you take on opposition? Would you say that the alternative should be that things stay black and white? Or would you just go the route of saying you wouldn't prefer morally gray uh, 
uh, characterization or morally gray characters, right? Because there's two ways to do this. You can present an alternative or you can just negate what is being presented. Or do you think it's strategic for teams to do both? Because in Asians, that seems to be like a debatable um, strategy, right? Or the meta in debating, mm-hmm. like, do you just attack? Do you defend? Do you do both? Is there time to do both? So for this motion, which one or which stance would you take? Uh, so I would take the stance of, um, I mean, telling, showing media of morally great people is fine, um, but it might not be the correct place to do it while people are kids. Um, I think mostly that's just from a nuanced standpoint, right? Because the motion kind of begs you to discuss rejecting morally gray, or at least not all, is calls you to reject morally gray characters in media, specifically for kids, right? So um, the way I would go about that is explain when children are children and parents are trying to teach them morals, what exactly is the goal, right? So the goal most of the time is... um, just to keep children away from harm. That's most of the time what it is. Keep the children away from harm. Make sure they follow the rules, for example. Um, because oftentimes, um, children aren't at the age where they're confronted with very complex problems, complex relationships, such that there is a necessity to understand um, more grayness and, like, I guess, moral ambiguity. Um, so things as simple as thou shall not steal or thou shall or like don't steal or love your parents or be a good person things like that um are kind of kind of need um children's media to establish that there's a good and a bad just that um while they are young it is established to them that there are very abs most of the time absolute bad things in the world that they probably should not do yeah so just a very um basic recap of what i think like opposition uh should do is just to explain that when you're a kid, here are the moral dilemmas you will be confronted with, or here are the cases in which it is likely that you will do bad things. Um, these do not require an understanding of moral grayness. Um, oftentimes, it just has to be don't beat up your classmates, don't steal from the cafeteria, or don't steal from a store or something. Um, and that's why the media the children's media that is being showed to kids nowadays in status quo is enough for now and over time when you become older um you'll either a be exposed to more media that um requires more critical thinking that presents you with a more complex or nuanced set of scenario moral scenarios and even maybe in the personal relationships you end up having when you're older that's how you learn and that's perfectly fine anyway um because oftentimes um, that's just a part of life. Um, and I think on top of that, it's, it's just kind of like these, the problems will evolve alongside the means to be able for you to learn how to navigate those problems. So thank you so much for that. So I really like this motion as well, because I think compared to the first one, this motion is a little bit more straightforward, right? So the main actor is children, the main medium is me, uh, social media, or, or not social media, like general media, like novels and cartoons, mm-hmm. and it's about how we should portray. So I think, like, for teams to really excel for this motion, they'd have to characterize really well, like, frame really well, and it's just really, like, pushing your concept and trying to flesh out as many ideas as possible, given that, I think, um, for most debaters, you know or kind of expect what the other teams are already going to say, right? Um, so you just got to anticipate a lot of it. 
Um, so we can move on now to the last motion of the set, which is this house believes that progressive news sites should post good reviews of media centered around minorities. So this one's kind of a controversial one, right? So it's about um, media integrity. It's about minority groups as well. So I guess yeah. the first question is for this one, um, what does it mean to be a progressive news site? Like who are the actors that we're talking about here? Okay. Um, so I, I think to be fair, I think the progressive um, definition might not do it justice. I wasn't sure. Like this is a, I think this is the motion that I spent the most time on because I, like the wording became a huge problem for me. Um, but yeah, progressive that, in this that sense, tends to happen. Yeah, yeah. Motion. Like yeah. progressive <laughs> in this sense is um, is like left leaning center left at most liberal to some extent i guess so um and this could range for example from i guess like wow well, it could range from vox media for example to just gen just generally media that is not for example like fox obviously because again going back to the idea of where the debate can reasonably take place um, as much as I would personally believe that I want all news sites to say good things about minorities, we can't always trust, for example, like Fox News to do that, or like, uh, this is an old example, but like Breitbart to do that, for example, or some troll page to do that. So some like troll um, conservative page to do that. So yeah, it mostly just generally takes place in news sites where it, it is um, one, that they have an audience as a result of being a news site. Um, second, they are a new site. So maybe this is like, if we're talking about categories, it's mostly like entertainment category, lifestyle category, opinion category. Um, because you notice how a lot of new sites right now, they don't solely just report current events, right? A lot of them also cover um, latest shows, latest movies, like essays on that. I think a good example, again, is like um, Box when they cover a lot of, I guess, like very opinion-based content around um, new media that is released. So yeah. Right, thanks for that. I think the I, I don't think the wording is an issue, though I, I do see where you might be coming from. Like it, it is just so difficult to word some motions, right? Like especially when you have an idea in your head and then you don't know how to translate it into the debate yeah. you want. Yeah, but I think the word progressive does it a lot of justice. So I think it's pretty straightforward. There's also a lot of room to debate this, right? So what does it mean to be a progressive news site? What are your priorities? Things like that. I guess the next part of this motion is really to talk about what is media centered around minorities? So are they like documentaries? Are they movies made by minorities? Are they movies that talk about minorities? Uh, how would you describe these things, especially if you were in government first and then if you were in opposition? Okay. Um, generally speaking here, what I had in my head, okay, was... Um, books, movies, shows, right, centered around minorities, so meaning it um, significantly involves minorities. This could range from um, the story being very clearly through the lens of minorities, whether it be by race, ethnicity, gender, etc. It could also be one that is about minorities, so this is why I think documentaries also fall within this category. Um, so generally, it's, it could range from a piece of fiction or a piece of nonfiction, um, that kind of centers around uh, minorities or centers around their lived experiences, centers around, could, could but not exclusively center around their issues. Uh, so, yeah. 
All right. So I think also that part is also a part that can be explored, right? By different debaters like describing these things, what do they cover? I think if I were, for example, on government, I'd talk about like, oh, these are ways to represent these groups. Or if I were an opposition, like, oh, we shouldn't always give positive media coverage because it could talk about stereotypes. Which I think now brings yeah. me, because I'm kind of excited for this motion, as you can see. Um, I'm already talking <laughs> about the arguments. So I kind of want to give the floor to you now and ask you, if you were in government, what's the benefit of having good reviews? Like, why, why is it not enough to talk about these minority films and these minority documentaries? Why do they have to be talked about in a good light for it to be meaningful? Okay. So I think the first thing is, it, it kind of begs the question of what does it mean to talk about something in a good light, right? And this can range from a variety of things. You can discuss that the narrative was fantastic. You can say that the cinematography was good. You can say that the acting was good. And from that alone, you kind of, there are already so many different benefits that you can get from that. So I think the first obvious one is viewership, right? If you talk good about a movie, um, a lot of the time people will go and see it. Um, the second thing I think also is like industry incentives. If there is a lot of critical acclaim around, or if 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 this if news sites try to um start making this like image or start projecting that there is a lot of attention, let alone positive attention around media that is centered around minorities, then there becomes an industry incentive to make more media around minorities. So regardless of what that media is, it generally just means things like more representation, things like more narratives about these minorities being covered. A lot of the time, it also means more minorities being hired because it means that more like acting gigs for people of color or for certain genders and you know sexualities become um, open because there's an interest now in representing these people on screen, on shows, on books, etc. The example for books, I guess, would be like things like consultants, for example, when people bring on um, like consultants to speak on behalf of people, the types of people that are being spoken about um, in a certain book or in a certain media. Um, So I think those are just like the benefits that kind of come from there. One is viewership, but second of all, it's like it kind of creates an industry incentive. Um, um, Do note, though, that this obviously all is like um, susceptible to response from opposition that I, I'm pretty sure that I will get to in like the next part of this interview. Yeah, before we go to that opposition side though, I kind of want to ask how you would run the argument on government on the principle, right? So um, besides the pragmatic uh, benefits of coverage, why do progressive news sites in particular have to do this? Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, so I think this one is kind of just a discussion on how a lot of these minorities um, are kind of sidelined or at best case sidelined, at worst case thrown under the bus or completely like lambasted by um, more conservative um, news sites, right? Or more conservative publications. So the principle here comes in a couple of ways. I think one is like, Oftentimes, these are the only people that can exist in order to, you know, um, support minorities. 
minorities in order to boost up the morale of minorities. Um, and therefore, they kind of have this like responsibility or this duty. I think another thing is like it could be like a responsibility or duty to its own employees and its own staff to ensure that the content that they're making on these new sites is also very reflective of the um, of the supposed support and diversity that they're trying to have within their own staffing as well. Um, it could also be something about like, I guess again a discussion on like alternatives. Um, given that it's very unlikely that they will get this level of positive coverage on other new sites means that they probably have to double down on it. And that's why it kind of says, the motion kind of suggests that um, they have to make these positive reviews actively, um, a lot of them in comparison to just like a very base level general amount as they normally probably would in the status quo. So I guess this brings me now perfectly to opposition. How would you refute that? Because the way I would do it is to talk about, well, you're you're basically lying, right? Like if it's a really bad like show or a really bad um, documentary, you're basically lying to the public and that goes against journalistic integrity. Um, is there something that you could add to this to make it a lot stronger as a principle? Because admittedly, I, I don't know how to build this and I think you would know best how to go about it. Okay, yeah. so I think my personal opinion is that um, what people tend to forget is that not all representation about minorities is good representation. And that can be for a variety of reasons. It can be, it doubles down on stereotypes, which is a bit more, I think, I guess might be a little bit more unpersuasive because it kind of taps into the worst case of government. But I think there are also other things such as um, it might not be the right thing for the movement at the time. So for example, um, uh, content right now or media right now that is centered around a very girl boss branch of feminism may not necessarily um, be crucial or priori uh, priority for a feminist movement that is trying to center around intersectionality or trying to center around the narratives of um, minorities who on top of being a gender minority as a woman is also a racial minority or a class minority, for example. Uh, well, not a really class minority because, you know, 99%, but you get what I mean. Um, like, that's, that's one thing. So um, on top of the whole journalistic integrity idea, it's also that oftentimes we can't always just go around posting good reviews of media around minorities. Sometimes we have to be critical of the way minorities are being presented in media because that's how we demand for a higher quality of representation that is able to be at par with the representation that a lot of people in major majority like communities or majority identities are like, you know, the way that straight people are interpreted or cis people are interpreted, right? So it's also a, a method to um, a means to clamor for a higher quality of something, right? Um, or a means to a means to clamor for a more critical assessment of something. Um, because not all minorities are in a vacuum. Like they have different opinions of how their like minority experience should be discussed at this point in time. And I think um, kind of telling news sites or believing that news sites should only say good things about every piece of media that is said about a certain minority, kind of. Um, uh, puts them at risk of having just such a like a subpar discussion around the way they're being portrayed. Um, it also also kind of takes away opportunity for them to make you know clarifications or to make more points or express more nuances about their um, community because that's also like it's it's also through creating opinion pieces and you know um, review pieces on media that people kind of also derive from their own personal experience or their own personal political 
um, experience with regards to their um, specific minority identity, right? So yeah, that's that's a thing. Yeah, I really like that principle. I also like the discussion on how it would reinforce uh, certain ideas. So I guess to add to, uh, to that, I kind of want to ask as a last bit for this motion, what backlash can you imagine on government side that you would point out if you were an all? Ah, so I, I think like the backlash that could happen it comes from a variety of things, right? So one is like journalistic type that don't, like it's not even just that you can't trust them when it comes to writing about media. It could also extend to their entire integrity in other categories. So current events as a media, um, because obviously they are writing this under an institution and this institution greenlighted this. So um, that's definitely something that could compromise the entirety of the whole news site, um, which obviously also translates into the way that they're trusted when they talk about more political things or more legislative things or more, I guess, what people would consider to be, quote unquote, more serious things. Um, second of all, I think it's also like um, how it could backlash the minority as a whole. So things like they can be seen as liars, you can't trust them, for example. Um, uh, I think it can also lead to, for example, backlash towards the actual form of media. So, or the groups of media that they're talking about. So there is some media that is actually good, I guess. And there's some media that's just mid. If, they, if the opposition or rather the people opposing this new site are able to prove later on that they're just lying and it's not actually, or they, they catch on that they're just saying positive things about everything, it could also affect the way that they view even the good or even the, the good types of media because they might be averse from that whole genre of media as a whole. So it might be preferable to just have a more, to just continue with a more objective way of assessing media, even if it's about minorities, and even if we understand that um, minorities historically did not get a lot of screen time. Um, actually, I think a mitigatory response or opposition could be specifically for like the present, right? Which is um, this isn't really that much of a problem. Like there's like um, there's a general trend already that exists toward um, supporting toward media that represents minorities, and it's quite good representation as well. Um, and I mean, the means to be able to clamor for more already exist in social media from actual minorities. So why does it have to be specifically from the news site trying to create the clamor when clearly this runs the risk of the whole company, runs the risk of the minorities, runs the risk of the whole genre of like making media around minorities. So I think that's, a, that's another thing um, opposition can tap into. Yeah, so thank you so much for those arguments. I guess to end this, right, the last question I have is, what would you tell novices that are afraid of debating media motions? Like, I, I know quite a few that are intimidated by media topics, which is strange to me because this is one of my favorite, right? Um, and I know this might not resonate with you as well because this is uh, the field you're in and uh, a motion type that you really enjoy. But for those that are scared of it, like what advice would you give them so that they can be more confident when they face these motions? Um, this is just for people in general. I really do think when it comes to media motions, we kind of have to look back at reality. I think sometimes the best structural reasons come from personal experience. And this is not an invitation to start talking about your personal life in speeches. Like when I was a kid, ganon. Um, but it's more of just, Notice how trends and phenomenons in media 
shape the way you dress, shape the way you behave, shape the way you feel about your insecurities, shape the way you engage in politics or how it shapes your friends when they engage with those things as well. I think um, a lot of media has to do with very like individual analysis, microanalysis of greater trends and greater phenomenons. Um, so if you're able to think of that, that's where you can derive like structural levels of analysis and frames. Um, because all of these motions that I just presented to you are all derived from um, my personal like reflection and assessment of my relationship with media when it comes to the way I view morals or the way I view fashion trends or the way I view um, discussing media around minorities. So yeah, um, if ever you need like inspiration for like how to go about arguing them, I think a good thing is like all of those video essays on YouTube, they're fantastic. They are fantastic. They're fantastic. Oh yeah, I love they're them. They're great, they're great, honestly. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's one lang. So just take inspiration from, you know, your life and the way you've interacted with media um, and the way you've seen other people interact with media. But also, you know, there's so much internet, there's so much like stuff on the internet that you can see to find like different media frameworks stuff like the tape you know uh, but there are many many other examples than just the tape but yeah yeah thank you so much Bessie um, this interview means a lot to me and I'm sure if Kyle were here it would mean a lot to them as well um, because you used to be someone we teach and now you're here and I'm getting <laughs> emotional <laughs> oh my God. so thank you so much it, it means a lot that you know you're here helping our initiative we've evolved from being your coach and now you know, I see myself as a coach of a lot of like different people that listen to this podcast. So I'm really happy you're here. Um, thank you so much for your insight. Thank you so much for all the motions. And thank you so much for this interview. It, it means a lot. I'm pretty sure our audience has learned a lot as well. Um, if they've made it this far, you know, like, but you know, uh, we never know that. <laughs> Maybe they, they just skip to the motion they debated, which honestly, like, yeah, that's a strategic thing to do. So I don't blame them. <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much again. And we'll see you everyone in the next episode. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.